Well, for this Easter, uh, we wanted to do a mini-series on the multifaceted hope. The multifaceted hope that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has secured for us. And last week, Pastor Ryan focused on hope for the failure. Hope for those who feel like they have failed in different ways. Well, today, I want to focus on Hope for the jaded. Hope for those who are struggling with being jaded and cynical. We as a society have been inundated with story after story of the abuse of power, cover-ups, distortion of truth from the halls of government buildings, media, corporate offices, all over the place. Even at a, uh, to a lesser degree, at a more street level, our email inboxes are filled with scam and phishing messages, right? The random prince who suddenly needs to borrow $10,000 from you. People have told me, Pastor Dwight, I got this email. I'm guessing it's not you, but it was sent by you. It's written in a way that doesn't sound like me at all, right? Hello, my dearest of kind friend. I need your help. Can I borrow $300, right? You get these kinds of messages. And all of this, all of these kinds of experiences have the effect of eroding trust. Eroding public trust. Eroding trust in our institutions. Eroding trust in our leaders. Eroding trust in people in general. And sadly, the church in America is not without fault. It seems like with regularity, in fact, it seems like oftentimes in this past two years from this pulpit, we hear of another church scandal, right? I'm always kind of saying, here's another church scandal that just happened. It just seems like one after another. Church leaders living a double life, falling into moral failure, deep character issues. And the problem isn't just limited to the pulpit either meaning the leaders, it's in the pews as well, amongst the members. Perhaps you've been deeply discouraged by, hurt by fellow members, whether because of hypocrisy, slander, or more broadly, just the way that you've seen the church professing Christians in this country speak and act over the past two plus years. Regarding all that we've gone through, issues of race, politics, COVID, and some of the vitriol and toxicity we've seen in the church. Perhaps you've heard about the process, the popular word right now, especially amongst younger folks, called deconstruction. Where many people are going through a revisiting of their faith and taking a deep dive and dissecting long-held beliefs regarding how they practice their faith or regarding faith itself. Do I really believe this anymore? A lot of people going through that process of deconstruction. Now, I think there are times where this process or aspects of deconstruction, there's a, there's a way in which it can happen in a good and healthy way, actually. And I'll share about that a little later. But there's also a way where it can ultimately lead to a very dangerous place. 
some folks in deconstructing end up reconstructing a faith that suits their own preferences and tastes, essentially a god or religion of their own making. Or there are those who simply abandon faith altogether, opting out of belief, and rather opting into, choosing to rather believe we're all here by accident, which ultimately means there's no ultimate meaning. There's no reason, there's no purpose, there's no grand design behind anything. Quite a bleak existence. But even if you don't end up at one of those extremes, nonetheless, week after week, month after month, year after year, of hurt, of disappointment, can slowly chip away at you in ways that you might not even fully realize. Right? It's like a person that's got cancer inside their body. They don't even know. And your disappointment and uh, disillusionment can easily begin to fester like an infected wound, turning you ultimately into just a very jaded and cynical person, which is a very unhealthy place to be. You see, jaded and cynical people might very well be able to point out legitimate faults. They see legitimate problems clearly, but it's very easy to do so. It's all too tempting to do so from a place of pride from a place of superiority, from a place of condemnation and ungraciousness, unforgiveness, not willing to help bring change, only point out problems. And often jaded and cynical people keep people at arm's length, largely because a lot of the times it comes from hurt. And so they end up keeping people at arm's length, isolating themselves, which makes matters even worse worse. I think it was Spurgeon who said uh, loneliness is the, is the pond where the devil loves to go fishing. Isolation is the pond where the devil loves to go fish. My prayer this morning is that God would do surgery on our souls. Whether it's on the early stages or late stages or maybe you don't even realize you have or maybe it's not much of an issue yet but nonetheless could become one. I pray that the Lord would do surgery in our hearts this morning to remove any cancer that there might be, the cancer of jadedness and cynicism from our souls. So I'd like to unpack these words that our sister Jocelyn read for us from the Apostle Paul, a man who was well acquainted with heartbreak, a man who had many reasons to be cynical and jaded but was not. Instead, he was full of faith, full of hope, full of love, even dying for the sake of the church. So, I'm going to share along these three points, okay? We're going to look at from this text reasons, reasons for cynicism, secondly, the reason for hope, and then thirdly, the response of hope. Okay, so reasons for cynicism, the reason for hope, and the response of hope. But before we do that, can I invite us to pray one more time? And let's go to our great physician. Jesus, we live in times, the, the zeitgeist, the mood of the era is almost one of suspicion, jadedness, and cynicism. It's now the water we swim in. 
we're tempted to think and assume the worst and be suspicious of everybody. That seems to be the climate we now live in. But, oh, Lord, how contrary to the gospel, how contrary to your desire, how poisonous this is. And so we pray, great physician, if there is this sickness in our hearts, would you reveal it through the mirror of your word? And not only would you reveal it, oh, great physician, you are the only one who can cut it out, who can free us, who can heal us, who can guard us against those cancer cells from reforming. So we pray that you would do just that for our good, the good of the church, to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So first of all, the reasons for cynicism. Let's begin by considering what the church in Corinth was like. This is a church that the Apostle Paul planted, and then he moved on to do ministry in Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, he writes to the Corinthian church to address some of the issues that were going on there. Very troubling things. What issues specifically were they going through? Well, I'll just list them for us. You'll find these throughout the book of 1 Corinthians where he addresses them. There were multiple factions, divisions, infighting they were drifting from the truth of the gospel and being seduced and drawn to worldly wisdoms and philosophies there was rampant sexual immorality in fact there was a publicly known person wasn't hiding it an incestuous relationship going on in the church chapter 5 verse 1 it says a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife individual was sleeping with his mother-in-law publicly well known it's the kind of thing that even the unbelievers of that time would say whoa that's really immoral happening in the church they were suing each other lawsuits going back and forth they were desecrating the lord's supper people were literally literally getting drunk people were approaching the bread not not meaningfully and in its spiritual significance, but simply as a free meal, which would be hard in our day and age. You just get the little disc. He said of their worship services, chapter 11, to 11, verse 17. Man, listen to this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine how bad the worship services must have been for Paul to say, you're doing more damage, you're doing more harm than you're actually doing good? They misunderstood spiritual gifts, and therefore they abused them. And lastly, they opposed Paul, the one who planted this church in the first place. And this is why he has to begin this letter by reaffirming and emphasizing the fact, the wording there is called by God to be an apostle. They were doubting his credentials. They were doubting his fitness as a leader. Even though he's the one that planted the church. This is not a church you would want to join. This is not a church any pastor would want a job at <laughs> yes the church in america in 2022 isn't looking so great right now 
in a lot of ways, but neither did the first century church in Corinth. Yet, the Apostle Paul's attitude towards them is nothing less than astounding. We see it in verse 4. Look what he says. I give thanks to my God always for you. I give thanks to my God always for you. Now, because of the fact that most of Paul's letter, letters open with similar language, right, in similar fashion, with similar phrases, grace and peace to you, I give thanks to God. It's easy to just kind of gloss over the words, but knowing what we know about the church in Corinth, knowing what we know about the types of issues they were going through, it is astounding that Paul can say and actually mean it. I think about you guys and I give thanks for you. Not just in one inspired moment where he can rev up some love. <laughs> he says, always. Always for you. Whenever you cross my mind. The very fact that he's writing to address these issues. And lead them and pastor them through it demonstrates that he had not given up on this church. He had not succumbed to jadedness and cynicism. If he had, we wouldn't have this letter. But Paul has hope. Hope that the situation can and would change. And it was well worth the time and effort. So the next I think obvious question is, where does that hope come from? On what is this hope based? Was Paul just a generally optimistic dude? Glass half full, I'm sure it'll be fine. No. How is it that Paul, a man who had seen the worst of things, the worst in people, how could he remain hopeful? And that's our second point, the reason for hope. Paul tells us why. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our in the day of Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the reason for Paul's hope over and against jadedness, cynicism, and hopelessness? Well, it has nothing to do with anything inherent in the Corinthians. He doesn't say, you're a great bunch of people. You're so sweet, talented. Bright and reasonable. I'm sure we're going to be okay is not what he says. Nor is his hope grounded in himself. Well, you see, I've seen many situations like this in all my years of ministry experience. I know how to turn this ship around. It's not what he says. Paul's hope, very wisely, is not grounded in people at all. Whether himself or others. No, he says, I give thanks always for you because of the grace of God 
given to you in Christ Jesus. His hope is anchored upon the fact that though God did not have to, he wanted to. He chose to call the Corinthian believers to himself. He set them apart for himself. That's what sanctified means here. He set them apart to become his own. But of course, being set apart by God is for the purpose of being made like God. Because the grace of God doesn't just get people into the kingdom. By his grace, Jesus gets the kingdom into us. Meaning, he transforms us that we might progressively live more and more into the values of the kingdom we belong to. In verse 5, Paul mentions evidences that God's grace is upon them. It was evident they had spiritual gifts. They had a number of highly gifted people. He addresses this later in his letter. And yes, they were misusing them. They were using, using them immaturely, but they had them, which signified the grace of God was truly upon this congregation. The grace of God was, in fact, at work in them. And as we sang in the beginning of the service, amazing grace is the grace that not only saves us, but it's the grace that brings us home and makes us fit for our home. In these few verses, the Apostle Paul mentions Christ nine times in these few verses to emphasize the ultimate hope of this church is not Paul, is not Apollos, is not any other leader, not any other member, but Christ alone. Because Christ is committed to his bride. And he will pour grace upon grace until one day, as Paul writes in verse 8, she will stand guiltless, perfect, without blemish, radiantly beautiful. He will do it, and he will not fail. Thirdly, the response of hope. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ guards us from two unhealthy extremes. On one hand, the gospel guards us from naive optimism or idealism. You know, idealism and optimism works till you turn about 22. <laughs> and then you get hit in the face with real life. My teachers told me I would change the world. <laughs> my teachers told me I could be anything I put my mind to. Wow. The world punches you in the face. The gospel guards us from naive optimism or idealism because specifically the gospel tells us clearly about this world and namely the human condition. Ever since our first parents rebelled against God, we are now plagued by this sickness, spiritual sickness called sin. And as a result, we are totally depraved. That does not mean we are as bad as we could all be. We could all be worse than we are. That would be absolute depravity to be as bad as you could be. Total depravity simply means every aspect of our nature has now been tainted by sin. Just like when you drop a, a, a drop of ink into a glass of water, it pervades the entire thing. And likewise, there's not a, a part of us, our thoughts, our desires that is untouched by sin sickness. Our hearts are now inclined away from God, away from the things that God would call good and right. 
all of us. C.E.M. Jode was a British philosopher and atheist who lived in the early 20th century. Later in life, towards the end of his life, he came back to the faith, the Christian faith that he was raised with. And he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. And in that book, this is what he writes. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left, he's, he's speaking of himself politically, were always being disillusioned by the behavior of both people and the nations and politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. You see, as an atheist, he thought, of course humanity has problems, but human beings, we can solve those problems. If we only had the right approach to government and economies, he was actually anti-capitalism. He thought capitalism was the problem. If we could just rid the world of capitalism, that would solve the world's problems. Everything would be okay. And he basically said, it's all about education. We can overcome the world's problems just by more education. But as he himself committed his life to trying to make the world a better place, he became this deeply disillusioned. As he saw the horrors of World War II and what educated human beings are capable of, he came to realize, I must be wrong about the human condition. Here we are living in a time of great, the greatest technical adva uh, technological advancement in the history of the world. We have access to more information on our phone than we could ever have dreamed of. Yes, youth, we used to go to this thing called the library where you go to the card catalog and have to look things up. You just open your phone and you have access to the world. More access to information. And yet, look at the atrocities in Ukraine. After World War II, people said, oh, never again. We will all learn from history. This will never happen again. And here it is. And not even overseas. Look at the violence and evil that still pervades our country. Because the problem isn't out there somewhere. It's in here. It's in every human heart. And here's the thing. That includes believers. Because we have what theologians call remaining indwelling sin. Sin is no longer your master, Jesus is, but nonetheless, all of us are susceptible to falling into great sin and temptation. David, the man after God's own heart is how he was called. He was known as the man after God's own heart. He had a point in his life where he decided to betray his most loyal soldier, forcing his wife, we could probably say he raped her, abusing his authority to force her to sleep with him, and then kills that loyal soldier to cover it up. Not as an unbeliever. We shouldn't be shocked by Christians behaving badly because the church is not a museum displaying perfect saints. The church is a hospital for the sick. And unhealthy people do unhealthy things. I don't say this to in any way excuse heinous behavior. 
Of course, in situations of especially abuse, there needs to be appropriate consequences taken and discipline and action taken to protect the victims and have the perpetrators face justice. But I, I, my simple point is heinous behavior should not totally shock you if you believe the gospel. So again, the gospel guards us from naive optimism or idealism about the condition of people. However, it also guards us from giving into pessimism, from becoming just so jaded and cynical because we believe in the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. The gospel points us to a third way between naive optimism and idealism and jadedness and cynicism as author Andrew Byers uses this term, I love it. The gospel points us to hopeful realism. Hopeful realism. Where you're realistic about the fact that we live in a fallen, sin-sick world. And Christians will not be shielded. God never promised he's going to shield us from pain, heartache, and disappointment. And we ourselves inflict heartache and disappointment on others. Yet at the same time, we remain hopeful, we remain committed to each other, to his church, to one another. We continue to labor in love, knee-deep in brokenness, because we have hope in the presence and power of Jesus Christ. This balance of hopeful realism is in fact displayed in the cross of Christ itself. On one hand, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and what should it tell you? What should it remind you of? How ugly humanity and the world can be. That we are so broken to the core that it took nothing less than the death of God's perfect son. He couldn't just send us religious instructions. Just do this and you'll be fine. It took nothing less than the death, the substitution of Jesus in our place, taking the uh, condemnation we deserve for our sin. Yet at the same time, we look to the cross of Christ and we are reminded Jesus defeated the power of sin. He broke it. So the hope of change is real. He himself promised, I am making all things new. And so yes, paradise was lost in the garden long ago. But he's moving us towards the garden city, the new Jerusalem, where the river will flow again. The tree of life will be there again for the healing of the nations. He's going to bring it. He's going to do it. And the gates of hell will not prevail. I think part of the reason why Paul can view this church with such hope and continue to pour himself out for the Corinthians, even though they're telling him, we don't want you, is because his own life his own testimony is one of the power of God to change the worst of sinners. He directed and oversaw the killing of Christians earlier in his life. And by the power of Christ, he was transformed to become an apostle for that very same Jesus. This is also why, even though of course he sees the faults and, and, and all the messed up stuff in Corinth. Of course he was aware. 
But his posture, his tone, he starts the letter with one of always giving thanks. He's not saying, you're such a bunch of idiots. What's wrong with you? How many times do I have to tell you? No, there's a posture of patience, of grace, of gentleness, of humility. Why? Because Paul, more than anyone else probably understood, I am the chief of sinners. And I am what I am only by the grace of God. And so for those who are living wild and acting crazy, it's not because I'm better than you. It's merely because God's grace broke into my life. I'm no different than you. So who am I to judge you or act superior to you? There's a tone of humility and grace and gentleness. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. If you really believe that, that God has forgiven what is inexcusable in you, you will become a person of grace. So as you remember the truth of the gospel, I pray that you wouldn't, again, simply be simplistically optimistic, nor jaded and cynical. Rather, walk in hopeful realism, dealing with disappointment, dealing with disillusionment, especially with the church and Christianity. Man, it's painful. I don't want to minimize people's pain. Some of you have been through some real pain and hurt. It's painful. It's exhausting. But if not processed in a healthy way, it can fester. That wound can fester and lead to the toxic disease of the jaded, cynical heart. It needs to be handled well. Namely, bring it to God. And invite others into your struggle. I hope renewal can be a place where people are able and safe to ask tough questions. Bring your doubts. And we're not like, are you turning away from the Lord? (laughs) Invite people to struggle and wrestle with their doubts. Because handled rightly, disappointment and disillusionment can actually lead to powerful growth. I mentioned earlier, some folks are going through the process of what's called deconstruction, where again, folks reevaluate and dissect their long-held beliefs, practices, faith itself. And it's often spurred on most of the time by some kind of deep hurt by the church, deep disappointment suffered in the church, or deep disillusionment. But again, deconstruction can actually be a healthy thing when it leads to a reconstruction of a healthier faith that's more closely aligned with Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Think about it like this. In a way, you could say the prophets in the Old Testament were deconstructing the unhealthy habits and practices that had taken root in Israel. You could say the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus deconstructing the religious rules and regulations the Pharisees had enforced on people, but weren't necessarily of and from him and so you see there are times where things do need to be deconstructed hard questions do need to be asked is this more american culture or is it truly the gospel is this what i was taught growing up and the approach to church and how we view people is is that really the gospel And what Christ teaches, or is that more just our small sect and tradition? 
These are good and important things to be asking. And again, when handled rightly, what starts as disillusionment and disappointment can ultimately lead to a faith that is more mature, more robust, more honest, and one where you really own it because you've thought through it and you've wrestled with it. One last way as I close in which disillusionment and disappointment can lead to growth. Uh, perhaps he's been quoted from this pulpit a lot, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during uh, the breakout of World War II. It was 77 years ago yesterday. He was hanged by the Nazis. He died because he spoke out against the Nazi regime. He was a German pastor, prolific author, and in his book, Life Together, he describes how some Christians have what's called a wish dream concerning their church community. A wish dream. They have a picture in their minds of what they wish their church was like. And he says it's often unrealistic. <laughs> he describes how those who are unable to let go of this wish dream, and believe me, members are guilty of this, <laughs> but so are pastors. <laughs> And if you are unable to let go of your wish dream, the kind of community and church you wish it was, you actually become a destroyer of the community. Because you begin to judge everyone for falling short of your wish dream. In other words, some people love the idea of what their church should be more than actually loving the church in front of them. Bonhoeffer says the wish dream has to die. Disillusionment in that sense has to happen so the door to true growth can happen. It's just like in a marriage. Or you could probably say this of a close friendship too. The person who loves the idea of what their spouse should be or the idea or ideal of what their friend should be, instead of just loving the person in front of them, will actually destroy that relationship. I wish you were like this. Why can't you be more like this? And why can't you be like more? And here's all the ways you're falling short. You see, that actually destroys the relationship. Likewise, those who love the personal dream and vision of what the church should be more than actually loving the church in front of them ends up destroying it. Instead, we're called to love the church where she is, just as Christ loves you where you are. They say in marriage, I think it was this guy Gottman, who's like a marriage expert, and, but again, this applies, I think, to deep friendships. They said there's three stages a relationship should go through. Enchantment, disenchantment, maturity. So enchantment is that young couple. I just officiated a wedding yesterday. And they actually wrote their own personal vows. And it was, I was, it, was, it was so moving. But I was like, man, young love. I promise to never disappoint you. I promise. Right? And it's these wonderful vows. And they're just enchanted with each other in those early months. And even perhaps maybe even first year. It's like, you can do no wrong. Oh, we're so different, but it's so cute. Right? Oh, we're totally opposite, but I love how we're so opposite. But then what happens? Give it some time. And then you fall into disenchantment. The things that you found so cute at one time, you pull your hair out. 
right? Or you begin to discover things you didn't realize. And you could only realize after you spend more and more time together. Again, this could happen in a friendship too. And there's a lot of times at that point people come to disenchantment and they're done. But maturity, that third phase is, I see all of your warts. I see your brokenness. I see all of your ugliness. And it's hard to look at sometimes and it's hard for me to accept. But I choose to love you. I choose to be committed to you. And as both, whether friends or a couple, take that posture, that's when that relationship hits a new level of maturity and growth and depth. And I think this can apply to churches. Where when you first come to a church and new members, perhaps, this is great! This is so different than my old church, yes! But then you're like, disenchantment, wait a minute. What about this? I don't really like this. And I kind of miss how this was. And trust me, there are at times valid reasons you need to move on from a church. But I think people have the tendency to leave too early when all they're experiencing is disenchantment, which every, everyone's going to go through. But the membership we, vows we just took, it's a covenant commitment expressing, I'm committed to my brothers and sisters. Just like a family, yeah, we're going to drive each other crazy. But we love one another in the love of Christ because we have first been loved by him. And so my hope and prayer is that renewal could grow in this way. That we, believing upon in the grace of God, believing he's committed to perfecting us, that we would continue to pour out our prayers, pour out our lives for each other with hope. Because the grace of God is indeed upon us. Let's pray. Just as we close and before our final song, if I could just give you a final moment. And maybe you see the seeds of jadedness and cynicism, bitterness, hurts and wounds that you haven't dealt with. Let me just, even in this moment, encourage you to at least begin to bring that to the Lord. For those of you who might be wrestling, perhaps this whole deconstruction idea is where you're at. If I could just invite you, myself, any one of the, the pastor staff, we would love to journey with you through that. Don't be afraid or ashamed that you're struggling with doubts. We all do. We all do. We all hit those moments. And so don't feel like you have to go it alone or that there's something wrong with that. We invite you and we want to walk with you through that. And of course, our hoping that you would come out on the other side with an even more robust, tested, matured, nuanced faith and grasp of the gospel. And thirdly,